1: This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Alley. Alley, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Alley, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs.
2: And now, on to my interview. With Lucas Sachs. We deal a lot with independent artists who don't have representation for some of our Sunday, Monday, Tuesday shows as well as opening slots. So we're constantly juggling what our expectations are versus the band.
1: Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music. Let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study their moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, (laughs) y'all. Welcome to the Silent Giants podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars and creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at at Corey Cambridge. This week's Silent Giant is talent buyer Lucas Sachs. Lucas is in charge of booking talent at Brooklyn Bowl, one of NYC's most popular performance venues. In this episode, we sit down and chat about his upbringing, how he became a talent buyer, He describes his day-to-day responsibilities, how he discovers talent to book for the venue, explains mistakes artists typically make when booking shows, and a whole lot more. If you're an aspiring artist or manager, there's a million gems in this episode, so listen closely. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the talent buyer, my friend, the silent giant, Lucas Sachs. (laughs) What's up, Lucas? How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. How you doing? Dude, I can't complain one bit, man. I'm happy to be here at the Brooklyn Bowl with you.
2: Likewise. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for being here.
1: Oh, and this what was casual stress? Casual stress Thursday?
2: Oh, yeah. Every day. Every day's (laughs) casual stress. Just figuring out how to manage it. Yeah, it's like it's rainy, but it's not too rainy. You want a little bit of rain sometimes when you have an indoor concert venue. Oh, that's a good point. You don't want it to be too nice out.
1: That's a good point.
2: Yeah. Wow, we're touching on things already. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Where are you from, bro? I'm from New Jersey. what part of Jersey? Uh, Monmouth County, near, like, it's basically Bruce Zone, Bruce Springsteen Oh, Central. very Americana? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Asbury Park is not too far from where I grew up. Okay,
1: so it's like kind of like a beach town?
2: Yeah, it's about five, I grew up five minutes from the beach, a little town called Rumson.
1: Doesn't uh, Bruce sometimes go and do, like, little concerts and pop up in, like, oh, Asbury yeah. Park?
2: Yeah, he he actually has a house in the town that I grew up in, and then another house 25 minutes away or so. But he'll definitely show up and do... You know, he'll jump in the Stone Pony, which is a historic venue down there in Asbury Park. And he'll he'll show up for, you know, they have this thing called the Light of the Day concert. Yeah. And he'll sit in with some people unannounced. And he'll play with, you know, when Alejandro Escovito comes to town, he'll go and sit in with him. And, you know, he's got his buddies. He okay. Like, he likes to still play, you know, a small club and not just do arenas when he can.
1: Uh, oh, were you a big Bruce fan growing up?
2: You know, it, it's funny because I, the New Jersey thing, like everyone either loves Bruce or really hates Bruce. Yeah. And there's very few people from New Jersey that have an in between vibe and approach to his music. I, I will say I've seen him nine times. It was the first concert I ever went to. Okay. I was probably eight or nine years old. And it was one of the rehearsal shows. He used to do these rehearsal shows at the uh, convention hall down there in Asbury Park. So, was, you know, it wasn't, it was a theater, it was a small theater. So he would do these shows for a couple thousand people just warm-up gigs you know he'd still be reading his lyrics off the teleprompter he'd be calling out songs as he went to the band when they were trying to figure out what they were wanting to do for the for the you know three and a half hour four hour show they were gonna put on
1: I give him credit for that man he puts on one hell of a show crazy yeah like you he's know. like LeBron James
2: yeah <laughs> when Seriously, it comes he to never shows. stops <laughs> you know nobody can beat that guy in terms of stamina right oh now, and, and like.
1: endurance man endurance and stamina like he's he goes, he goes in. He goes in.
2: He runs out of, he runs backstage for a few seconds, probably to to pee, and that's it. You know, and then he's right back at it.
1: But I have to give, you know what? One thing that I have to say, I may not like a person's music, but I have to respect the give a fucks who give about the craft.
2: Absolutely. Like
1: he gives one hundred percent.
2: But he's always himself the whole time too.
1: Yes. That's huge.
2: Yeah. It's so always genuine.
1: So I uh, did you grow up in a musical household?
2: Uh yes and no. My family is always been sort of creative and artistic. My mom's a writing professor at a local university. My dad's a dentist, but we always had people singing or, or, you know, artists in the family. Growing up, I played piano a little bit, didn't love it. Um, And then, you know, a bunch of my friends in middle school started playing guitar, Everybody was starting to do guitar lessons. And we had a local music store down the street. And I was like, you know what, I should try this. Let's see what's going on. So I took guitar lessons in middle school, uh, made a band with some friends in high school, started booking our shows when we were doing that, and kind of used that it was like, all right, well, this is cool. Like someone has to set up the gigs and tell people we're doing them, And then we would always get consignment tickets. we We'd play places like the Stone Pony., okay. you know, not when Bruce was ever there. <laughs> but you know, we would do like the local opening slots sometimes, and they would they would give you seventy five tickets and tell you you got to keep two dollars for every ticket you sold. Oh, all right, so, you know,
1: make a little bread.
2: Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> we had an eight-person band, so okay, not
1: a lot of bread. Literally,
2: little. Yeah, by, by lunch, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we were sixteen or seventeen. You know, it was fun for us at the time, and that kind of got me started with that, and then that got me interested in in just what it was like to be behind the scenes in music instead of just playing it.
1: Yeah. Uh, why did you make the transition from like wanting to be on stage talent to like more behind the scenes? Uh, like- I
2: just figured I'd be better at it. You know, like I I still play guitar. I'm still in the same band I've been in since college, you know, uh, 10 years been playing with the same people. A bunch of us work in music and it's just a really good hobby for us. You know, it's a really good way for us to just relax and sort of remind ourselves why we work in music and why we like it so much by playing it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, not having to worry about that for paying rent and for paying the bills, you know?
1: I mean, that's a very interesting like, observation to have within yourself to know at a very early age, you know, mm, I may be better at, you know, doing more administrative behind the scenes stuff in the music industry. Uh, was there a light bulb moment for you that that occurred or just was so natural?
2: Yes and no. I mean, I was I was applying for colleges and I had been interning for a piano player who needed help doing live sound and in his recording studio near where I grew up. So I kind of got to do a little bit of everything you know, from early on. So I was applying to school and I was looking at Berkeley and some of these other programs for music business. And I realized a lot of them, NYU, you know, a a lot of them had auditions and I couldn't read music really well at all. You know, I was just playing guitar, you know, classic rock and blues playing by ear, Mm -hmm. you know, tabs, nothing crazy. That's how
1: I play. Yeah, It was fun. It
2: was just, you know, it was, it was a hobby for me and I, I enjoyed it. So I knew that I was smarter and better at school than I was as a, you know, a guitar player. Okay. So I knew that I had to use what I had in order to get into school. So I applied to a bunch of schools for these non-performance based music business programs. So I ended up getting into Syracuse, and I was in the Bandier program over there in the second year that they started it. Um, so I graduated in two thousand twelve. Um, so I was the second class, you know, there was no audition. They had an interview. I had to go up there and talk about a lot of the same things I just told you. Why, why do I like music? You know, what got me into it? And, you know, why do I think it makes sense to be on the business side of it as well? You know, and I, I think there's a lot of people that work in music who don't have any musical background where they're not performers and they don't understand equipment and tech as much, right? you know, that comes up on, you know, in what I do sometimes, but there's a lot of people who care a lot about it and know a lot about it. And it makes it enjoyable to do what we do all the time. I think when you can have those sort of like-minded conversations of geeking out over somebody's guitar pedals or, you know, that kind of sort of thing. So I went into this program in Syracuse knowing that I wasn't going to be auditioning and it was just focused on business courses and a lot of different communications things. So it was a pretty broad program. It was in four different colleges okay. um, at Syracuse. Okay. So they touched on the communications school and the business school and the arts and sciences and some other thing. I can't even remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that was to me what got me super excited because we had mandatory internships. But the program, you know, was run by an industry veteran who had been a promoter up in upstate New York for 30 years. And all of our teachers were, you know, very active in the community. They weren't just teachers. They were music people who were, you know, one of our one of our other professors uh, has a label and was on the road with bands and had a radio show. And he was pretty much doing everything you could possibly do in addition to teaching and, you know, ha- having multiple degrees. So, you know, that was exciting for us. And they helped us get internships using the connections that we had. And they taught us about, you know, creating your web and your network of people and how to know who's going to be helpful to you and, you know, the way to navigate, you know, music.
1: That's also the best thing about, uh, I learned from music professors um, that they're still very active in the community. It's on a very good point. You know, it's kind of hard to, sometimes your teacher can feel uh, like just the teacher.
2: Yeah, exactly. But it's like
1: weird when you see him at Walmart
2: Right, <laughs> it's like whoa. <laughs> yeah, you have a life outside, right? This.
1: Yeah, but one thing about music professors that are really, really cool that they still are, have that love for music and still are active. So Absolutely. whether it's uh, uh, I've interviewed you know Susan Rogers, who's Prince's engineer, uh, she's That's now awesome. at Berkeley, or Bob Power, who was like the engineer behind um, uh, you know Tribe Called Quest. Yeah, um, he's now a professor at NYU. So a lot of these folks are still very, very active in the music community, along with their uh, professional teaching profession.
2: That's awesome for them. But I think it also gives the students a real upper hand, you know, watching these people who have done, you know, multiple decades of work in the industry who then also teach, but stay active in what they're doing. These people have so many connections, they can help the students, you know, you have to start from the bottom in music, no matter what, whether you're a student trying to get an internship, or you're a recent graduate trying to get a job, or you're in a job and trying to move up. Or get a different job, you know. There's always there's a lot of dues you have to pay, and a lot of time and hard work. And sometimes you just need somebody to stick their neck out for you a little bit.
1: Well, you touched on something else too. Um, speaking about your college experience, that I feel that a lot of universities don't set you up for is teaching you how to build your network.
2: Absolutely. A, a lot of
1: times, it teaches you the, the X's and O's of how to get an A. Yeah. Um, but not really the people aspect of what it takes to be, um, you know, successful.
2: There's a lot outside the classroom you know you can't just learn from a textbook especially for this business you know any creative field i think when you when you have to deal with the business side of a creative field there's no rules i think there's a lot that you can sort of figure out as you go and you notice that everybody has different backgrounds different levels of experience you know no no two people working in the business are really the same you know and that's kind of That's one of the things I love about working in in the music industry is that you deal with people that are completely different, doing the same, you know, even if you're doing the same thing, I'm going to book a band on a whatever night, the same band, same type of band, whatever it is, you're dealing with completely different personalities, different approaches to the same problems or the same, you know, negotiations. It makes it really interesting. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, mentors, Mm. and people learning What's you know? How do you approach a situation when you don't understand? You know, it's it's a real time thing. You have to learn as you go. A lot of this, and you have to have some sort of ba- instinct crossed with, you know, background information that you get from a mentor. But everyone has a different teaching approach.
1: Right. Uh, you mentioned <clears throat> uh, how did you get into you're, you're a talent buyer here at Brooklyn Bowl? Did you That's know you
2: correct. were going to be a talent buyer uh, while in college? I didn't really know that during college. You know, I, I wasn't sure exactly what I liked. They always encouraged us to do different things for internships. You know, they said, D- work across every possible side of music. is or, or, you know, it wasn't even just music. Some people do things with film and other stuff. But, you know, they said, just try to get as well-rounded an approach as you possibly can to figure out what you're good at and also what you're not good at, what you like and what you don't like. You know, those are obvious things, but... Putting it into action, you know, I interned at BB King's um, in Times Square, which just closed actually. And, you know, Highline Ballroom and Blue Note were all part of the same family. So I was interning for them through their assistant talent buyer, who was a, another Syracuse graduate, um, about seven or eight years older than I am. Um, and she was the one who opened the door for me the first time. So I interned there and I got to see. What what's a venue like? You know, what what's the back end of a venue look like? How does that work? So I was doing contracts and I was doing a little bit of, you know, it was elementary stuff. It was right after my freshman year of college, but it got me interested in working for a building. Okay. A concert promoter. And through that same internship, you know, we they were Highline was producing shows in Governor's Island that summer. So they let me go be a production assistant there. And then there was a subcontractor doing the production work who was also helping with All Points West. Um, which was that AEG festival that only happened for two years out on um, Liberty State Park. Okay, So that was 2009. I was good enough at the production assistance stuff I had been doing um, with skills I learned from being in a band and having to move my own stuff around and dealing with that logistics, those logistics. And um, they helped, they let me do all points West. So I got to do a lot of different things. I was like setting up Jay-Z's trailer just with furniture and like that was Kind of exciting, but it was also like a wake up at four a.m., drive an hour and a half, work a nineteen hour day, and then see some of the show, and then go home and do it again for yeah, five you, days. You in the gauntlet? Yeah, and that was totally unpaid. You know, it was just part of my credit based internship, but I was happy to do it, and I met a lot of different people doing it. And that that one summer essentially turned into three different internships just because of all the different things I was doing. Wow, you know, so that was that got me really excited with live and i wanted to do live music primarily you know i had been interested in music supervision and i realized i needed to be in front of in front of a band in some way i wanted to watch the show i wanted to see the fans reactions i wanted to see when you know fans are cheering and the band feeds off of that and then you have this cycle of people just being really happy and excited and you know that energy is is hard to top you know, that's something I think about when I see sold out shows here. You know, I watch the fans as much as I watch the band. You know, mm. you want to see their reaction. Are they having a good time? You know, it it's it's all these cyclical, you know, like everything everybody plays off of one another.
1: Mm. And and so how did you become a
2: you know, talent buyer? How, how that even happen? So, I'll skip ahead to um some later internships. I did some management stuff, was trying to figure out if I liked artist management versus talent buying, I decided those were my two strongest interests. And, you know, upstate New York, where I was in Syracuse, there was a theater called the Westcott Theater. It was a 700 cap converted movie theater from the 30s. So it had stadium flooring. The green room was the projection room. So you could see out, the bands could see out the little window into the crowd. It's a really cool room. And they were bringing all these bands really similar to what, ultimately what I do here now. So you know, I was seeing Galactic and Soul Live and Lettuce and Grace Potter and Railroad Earth and Humphreys McGee, and that exposed me to folk and jam bands and so many different types of genres. You know, seven hundred tickets upstate New York—it's not the same as seven hundred tickets here. Those are much usually much bigger acts. Um, they'd be playing much larger rooms here than they would upstate New York. Okay. So it was just cool because we would always be front row. We would go to every show we wanted. The tickets were usually cheap enough. That got me really interested in those groups. And I ended up doing um, one of the smaller concert boards, and I sort of weasel my way in. There was about seven people running it, and my buddy was the the president, and he was graduating. And he said, you want to be my vice president this semester before I graduate? I was like, sure. I hadn't even been a member of it, but it was so small, and they had almost no budget. The main concert board was, doing, was getting a million dollars a year from the university to put on Multiple 10,000 person shows. Wow. So they were doing the real stuff. These guys had 2,500 bucks per semester. So they were doing Pete Francis from Dispatch in the local 75 person coffee shop. And they had Pete Francis play every year without fail. Really nice guy, but just not what I was hoping to do once I got there. So I got in that. I sort of changed it up a little bit, was looking up who books. Who booked whom? You know, I just, you can Google search and Facebook search a lot of booking agent contacts. So I thought about the bands that I would see at the Westcott Theater who might be the openers for those bands and then try to contact them through their booking agents. And I made a bunch of connections through that and ultimately worked with um, Soul Live's manager at the time. And I booked Nigel Hall, who sang with Soul Live. I couldn't afford to pay Soul Live properly. So I got the guy who sang with them and plays piano with a drummer. So okay. we did that. That was our first, you know, the first time I was on the board of this small organization using the university money. And then we expanded it over the next year and a half. And I had Grammatic and um, uh, Best Coast at the Westcott Theater ultimately by the time I graduated. So I stayed in touch with all those managers, all those booking agents. And I, I reached out to everybody when I was trying to find a job. Who's going to help me out? you know, and a lot of them were really nice and they didn't know me in person, but they were all willing to stick their neck out and say, well, we know that you're in school. Like you, you only know so many people. If we have any day-to-day positions open anywhere, we know of any, we'll, you know, we'll help circulate your resume. So I found out from Live's manager that there was potentially an internship that could maybe turn into an assistant position here at Brooklyn Bowl. And I went in to say hi to those guys because their office was just a five-minute walk away in Greenpoint at the time. And they said, well, come back and talk to us after and let us know how it went. So I did the interview here through the recommendation from Solive's manager. They basically agreed to hire me as an intern Um, two days a week. I went back to Solive's office and I said, well, I'm only going to be there two days a week. They said, oh, what are you doing the rest of the week? I was like, I don't know, nothing. I said, why don't you come and do part-time day-to-day with us? So I said, sure, let's do it. So they paid for my train tickets to go back and forth from New Jersey and paid for lunch because I wasn't in school anymore, so it wasn't for credit. And two and a half days a week, I was working with Soul Live's manager doing tour advancing and festival advancing for Grammatic and Break Science and Khaki King and then um, a little bit of Lettuce and Soul Live and then interning here. And that was my summer after graduating college and I was ready to be hired. I was ready to put it all in there and you know really really show everybody what I could do, and hoping that someone would hire me. And you know, nobody was really jumping to you know to sign a contract right away. Yeah. nobody wanted to say, well, they were happy with the the either free or part-time labor that they were getting at the moment, which I understand, you know, And it was sort of a catch-22, because you want to work as hard as possible to prove that you're worthy of the job, but they also want to have the labor as long as they can until they absolutely know they need to hire you. So I called up a previous internship boss at a different venue and, you know, just exploring my options. I said, I'm here, I'm doing these two internships. Um, You know, I want to, I want to move to New York. I want to get a full-time job. I'm eager, ready to go. It's been two and a half months. You know, obviously there's no real timeline, sort of just whatever happens, happens. But he, I did an interview with him He's a concert promoter. His venue had closed by then, so he was doing promotion, you know, putting on his shows at different venues. And he made me a job offer to work for him as an assistant. So it was sort of talent buying. It was sort of just assisting someone. Um, I wasn't thrilled with the amount of money. I kind of knew I wasn't going to be. Of course. But I had, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but I had a piece of paper that said, hey, here's a job offer. And there was a time limit you know, there's an expiration date in the offer. I think I had a week. So immediately I went back to Soul Lives Manager. I went back to Brooklyn Bowl and I, I waved the paper in everybody's face and I said, hey, I'm ready to go. I don't I don't necessarily want this, but I right. don't want to show my hand too much. So I had to try to figure out who was going to be willing to hire me. And And the other guys, you know, down the street, unfortunately said, you know, you're great. We like, we're glad you're helping us, but we just don't have the budget to pay you and to bring you on full time right now. And Brooklyn Bulls said, "Yeah, let's do it." So there we go. That's how it started, <laughs> and that was six years ago next week. Wow! Congratulations, bro. Thanks.
1: Yeah, that's like uh, I've been in New York for almost that amount of time. Yeah, you've been kicking ass, taking names.
2: I've always been here, and I've so l- I've loved it ever since.
1: You mentioned uh, that there was a moment where you wanted to do. You were deciding between artist management and being a talent buyer.
2: Yes. Why not artist management? So the way I looked at it, it could be a little naive because I didn't have a ton of real world world experience in it, you know, it was several internships and some part-time work. But, you know, I knew that management on a small scale is something that I liked. You know, I had interned for a very large international artist. His management company was one manager a publicist, an office assistant, and then an assistant manager. So just four of them, and you know this is a this is a world touring artist, you know, famous for f- almost fifty years, and the I, I had zero responsibility. There were two interns every time I was there, so neither of us did anything except some you know errands. I had to read through this artist's autobiography to search for a name just in case it was there because this artist had a falling out with the person and they were going to have to edit the book to take the name out. Okay. So I missed three trains going home while reading this book and the the guy's name wasn't in it. You know, it was just like little things like that where I was like small scale stuff to me was more exciting. When I interned for Soul Lives Management Company, you know, it was a very small company and they had a few artists. They were also the label and they did all the marketing. And they helped produce this festival and they were they were really hands-on. So I got to do a lot more. The responsibility factor was was much higher, you know? They needed the help. It wasn't a question of like we're doing you a favor and giving you an internship because you're a kid in college and you know, you're supposed to do this and we need to help occasionally. It was, you know, we, we're a small company with artists who are trying to make a living and we genuinely need the help. So if you're willing to step up, we'll give you more responsibility. So with Soulive, we put on a festival at Stratton Mountain Ski Resort one summer, and that was the summer I was interning for them. And I ran the VIP program, having never done that before, and I had three different sections, and I had to deal with all these you know, expensive ticket holders, and there was meet and greets and all these promises, and I, it was just me and two volunteers. And that was a really eye-opening experience for me, but that was more of a festival thing, but it was from the management side. So okay. I knew management on a small scale was more exciting. Because I had more responsibility, I was more part of the, you know, family of, uh, you know, of the team. I was part of the team. You know, it felt more real. But the ups and downs of being on call 24-7 to an artist where you are solely responsible for making things right, you are the, you are, you know, the hub of the wheel. You're connecting all the parts of the team. You're the one who's the voice of the talent, of the artist you know, to the rest of the world for a lot of the time, you know, so and to the rest of the industry as well. So you're trying to figure out how to please them. And I was getting hit up as an you know, a part-time person by artists in different countries being like, Where's our van? And I had already pre-confirmed everything, you know, and this was my off day. But I wasn't I was, you know, a part-time helper, expected to be a full-time person. And I, I realized, you know, like the ups and downs of dealing with one artist career can be really exciting but you're seeing the same show every day it does evolve you're dealing with the same people every day you know and that's that is exciting And i think i still think about that a little bit but being a promoter being a talent buyer you can see a different show every night you're dealing with different bands constantly you know sometimes i talk to 100 bands in a day depending on what the day is like yeah you know there's a lot to do and seeing that show is exciting to me and exhilarating, and not, you know, I'd rather be tied to a room than to a group of people. Is what I realized.
1: Yeah, because I, I feel like uh, very similar vibes were flirted with the idea of management. Um,
2: yeah.
1: But I look at management as almost like having a professional baby. Exactly. Like you are, you are in charge of your child. Yeah. Uh, but not calling me artist a child, but you're just one hundred percent responsible for when things go right. When your child makes an A, you're awesome. Yeah. When your child flunks. And like being, you
2: know,
1: uh, fucking up in class, you're a shitty parent. Yeah, it's your it always fault. Co- it always comes back you're, to you're the responsible. parent. Yes, one hundred percent.
2: I mean, I've heard many people say it's like adult babysitting, you know. And and I have a lot of friends who work in different parts of the industry, and some of them were managers and now are looking to do other things, or have gone on to other things. And I also know some people who've gone into management, but started in different areas, you know. So everyone sort of moves at their own pace and has different feelings about it. But, you know, a lot of this industry is really just preparing for things to go a certain way and then being able to react quickly when they don't. Right. You know, as much as whatever your job is in any side of music, there's always that. Having to react quickly to something that got messed up or something that didn't happen or something that, got, that was delivered that was never, you know, or was promised but never delivered. You never know.
1: Well, I mean, when I was uh, in college, I was... And a band also manage the band. Um
2: that's a lot to do at the same time.
1: Oh yeah. Um, but it's also too one thing about managing versus like if you were gonna manage one singular artist, uh it's one person. It's yeah. one person's life. Yeah. Managing a band is like five wives. Oh my god. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. And and not saying that you have to make
2: everyone happy.
1: Make everybody happy, but also too, we're we're grown-ass men. So people have, you know, significant others. People have children. People have other things attached to their life, not just them. Right. Um, and you're also managing kind of that as well.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of expectation from each individual member of a band. Yes. You know, because they have to deal with a lot.
1: So I always tell folks, like, when you want to get into management, make sure you understand that it's, a, it's not just a, a...
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?
1: a managerial part, but it's also a people skill, people managing.
2: Yeah. It's like, like life. It's a lifestyle type of job. It's yes. not just, you know, it's not just a nine to five. Yes. Most of these things, but management, being an agent, being a talent buyer, you know, anything where you're based around live music, where there's events happening, you know, there's, it's 24 seven thing.
1: So now we're going to get to the nitty gritty of being a talent buyer. Let's do it. So what is a talent buyer for folks who are tuning in who have never heard of the title, Talent Buyer.
2: It is a term a lot of people are not aware of outside of music, I have come to realize. So I tend to describe myself as a band booker. So I book bands for Brooklyn Bowl. So I am a talent buyer tied to a specific concert venue. There are also concert promoters who are not always tied to concert venues, who put on shows in different venues. So, you know, I am the in-house talent procurer for this venue
1: now how do you discover talent
2: there's a lot of different ways to discover talent I mean firstly this venue is between six and nine hundred capacity and we're in Brooklyn you know it's a extremely competitive market New York is the most competitive live music market in the world so we're always competing with everyone else So there's a lot of factors that go into that for here but even just in general looking for talent, you know, in in the age we're in, there's SoundCloud, MixCloud, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. There's everything. You know, we look at all social media platforms. We think about who's active, who's not active. Um, you know, we also take recommendations from industry friends. You know, I talk to a lot of my friends in management and say, who, who are you guys looking at signing? You know, who did you just sign? So I always try to be aware of who's coming up On a smaller scale, that might not be ready to play our room, but I have to be aware of other shows they're doing. So I also go to other shows at smaller venues and try to see, okay, who just sold out Mercury Lounge or even sometimes who's playing at Arlene's Grocery. It depends on what it is. Okay. There's no right or wrong. It's just being as much of a sponge as possible, being able to look and see what there is.
1: Now, are are the other talent buyers in the area also communicating with each other? Absolutely. Okay.
2: It's pretty common for talent buyers to be talking. You know, like you are competing with each other to a certain degree. A lot of people have pretty close relationships. You know, we all go to each other's shows. You know, everybody will throw each other on the guest list. It's pretty copacetic. Everyone's pretty good about that. So, you know, there were there were a few venues and a few people that I talk to pretty regularly and say, well, how did this show do for you? Is this going to be a good one? I'm thinking about booking this artist. And they'll say, yeah, you know, this, this guy sold out a month in advance. You should definitely do it. Or, you know, maybe not. So that, that factors into the into the conversation a lot of the time. You know, there's, it's just having your ear to the ground at all times. Talk to talent buyers. Talk to managers. Talk to booking agents. Find out who they just signed or who they're looking at. But also just see what are the people listening to, you know? It doesn't have to just be music people. Music people get excited about stuff and find out about it early. But it doesn't mean it's going to sell tickets right away.
1: Right. Um I like to think of being a talent buyer as being like the A&R of the live music part.
2: Absolutely. Um, That's a great way to put it. And, I, I,
1: and A&R is such a sexy job. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm an a and I'm an A&R. And uh, I always often wonder, what are the tough spots about being an A&R? So what are the tough spots, the hardest part about being uh, a, a you know talent buyer?
2: There's a lot of difficult things that go into talent buying. Um, I would say just the fact that we get hit up by so many people constantly. You know, we have a blanket email that, that gets sometimes 200 emails a day of just people saying, hey, can you book my band? Or how do I get in touch? Or I represent this artist. And, you know, some people are more detailed than others and we'll read through it and reach out to them. And sometimes they're just literally, hey, how do I book a show there? And they won't leave their name or number or an artist or any... You don't know anything, you know, but there's just constant bombardment. So... You know, my cell phone is also my work phone. So it's always ringing. It's always, people are always texting me. You know, there's no on or off switch. So it's just really figuring out how to manage time is one of the biggest things, one of the biggest challenges. We're doing 11 shows a week in this venue as well. So there's a lot of volume. So there's a lot of, you know, I I hate to put it like this, but it's like triage, you know, in battle. You know, you have to figure out what's the most pressing time-sensitive or largest issue that you have to deal with at the, any one moment. And you deal with it as quickly and as efficiently as you can, and you move on to the next thing. You know, so I mentioned earlier that Ticketfly is down. And we're right now, we're you know, we're a Ticketfly venue. We have been since we opened. We have a great relationship with them. And, um, you know, I learned a few hours ago that they were hacked and that they shut down their site to protect everyone's data. So it, it affects our front end of our website as well as our ticketing platform, So we can't even tell people that all the shows we're doing for Governor's Ball after parties this weekend are still happening other than on social. Mm. And we're literally answering the phone saying to people, if you want to buy a ticket, tell us your name and how many you want and bring cash to the box office tonight. You know, we're making our own will call list, you know, just guaranteed entry lists through that. So that's a real time problem that we're having right now. And we're just trying to figure out how to do that while also have the artists effectively promote those same performances when they're more focused on their festival performance, not necessarily an after party.
1: So let's say for instance, um, you know, I'm an act and uh, you booked me here at uh, Brooklyn bowl. What, as far as promotion goes, are you in charge at all of promotion? Is the venue in charge at all of promotion or is the band or the artist singularly in, troll, uh, singularly in charge of promotion?
2: It's highly mutual. So, you know, we have an in-house marketing team, a lot of what being a talent buyer is as well is knowing the audience for the artists that you're booking. So, I have to dictate to our marketing team, "Hey, this is this artist. Let's go let's approach it from, you know, these five areas. You know, it's a country artist. We don't do a lot of country stuff. Okay, let's hit up Nash FM, the country station on Long Island and try to get them to do a radio presents and give away tickets on air. So, we're appealing to country music listeners. Mm, okay. You know, we do um, you know, we do a lot of world music here. So we've worked with World Music Institute, which is a nonprofit concert promoter that, um, you know, has a big, strong mailing list of, of people who are willing to go to artists' performances they might not even know. You know, so there's a lot of different angles that you have to hit. And I have to dictate that as well. But our marketing team does a great job. And, you know, they're all skilled and they know they know what we're doing. So it's it is also expected of the artist to promote their show even if they're on a 100-date tour. You know, we're agreeing to guarantee them a certain number of dollars for their performance and there's a lot of expectation leading up to that, you know. Contractually, we're saying, "Yeah, we're we're marketing the show. We're going to tell everybody we can that this is happening. Yeah. But we need you to help us too." There are sometimes where we book bands that are not our bread and butter and we really rely heavily on the artist because their fans are the ones who are going to come to the show, not necessarily our standard Brooklyn Bowl uh, concert goer. So we rely even more heavily on the artists. When we know we're getting someone um, whose fan base is not our usual uh, person.
1: Now, is, uh, does a band typically make money off of the ticket sales? Or is it like you, they're contractually obligated to make a certain amount of money?
2: It's different hey, every how does that, time. How does that work? Everybody structures deals differently. You know, some venues do door deals where they will give the band, um, you know, let's say sixty-five percent of ticket sales. Okay. So any ticket, whether it's sold online or at the door, no matter what, the band is entitled to sixty-five percent of that. Okay. It gets more complicated when you factor in, you know, bar minimums and things like that. We don't do that. You know, we we keep we have bowling, we have the restaurant, we have the bar. And we have the concert venue. It's all one room, but everything kind of operates separately in terms of the business side of it. Yeah. So we guarantee bands money. So what that means is we're saying we're committing financially to X number of dollars, regardless of how the show does. So the band is guaranteed to get at least that amount of money. That's great. With the ability to make more if the show does really well.
1: Right. That That's great, though. I and mean, I will say that a lot of times uh, in New York City, is very much like, you know, you Play to pay. It's almost like association basketball.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, it's the same thing with those consignment tickets I talked about before. Yes. You know, pay to play is a terrible model. I, we really don't like it. Uh, to me, a lot of it is, it, it sort of shows a lack of either integrity or experience. And with certain size rooms, that makes sense. There are artists where, you know, instead of a pay to play, they'll just do a door deal. You know, like Mercury Lounge for years and years and years was always a door deal room. And that makes sense.
1: Yeah, you know? totally
2: a lot of people are knocking on their door, but they also do two shows in a night and they have to do sometimes five or six bands in a day. And, you know, not every band is going to be able to bring enough people to fill up the space. They poll at the door because they're doing percentages. A lot of venues do this, especially when there's percentages. They say, when you buy a ticket as a fan, they say, which band are you come in to see? And they, they tally. And that factors into how much that band is going to get paid. Right. Because they're really not, those aren't always even cohesive shows. Sometimes you just get three bands that don't know each other that are not even the same style of music that might not even fit that well, who have three completely different audiences. And it's the venue's ability to, you know, keep the bar open and and be open that night by bringing in different crowds. But you don't develop a fan base as a band when you do things like that as much. And, you know, as a venue, you don't develop as much of a built-in crowd. This venue is completely different. You know, we don't poll anybody. You know, we don't even ask them if they're coming here just to bowl or anything. You know, if you come to Brooklyn Bowl without a concert ticket, whatever the ticket price is for that show that night is what the cover charges at the door. You know, and all of that money gets factored into the gross that goes towards the deal for the band. Mm. So if you're coming in just to eat and drink or just bowl, if the show is $20, you're still going to pay $20 and then you're going to do a la carte as much or as little as you want once you get inside. But that way... You know, because it's one room, you can still always see and hear the show. There's no separate space where it might make sense in, order, in that way to charge differently. But the way we do it allows for bands who might be worth 200 tickets in New York to do 400 or 500 tickets. You know, the model is that people will come in because it's Friday night and they just want to come in for a birthday party or a bachelor party or, you know, after wedding parties we do sometimes. And people just want to come and have a good time. And they usually walk in with a few friends. You know, it's never just, it's rarely one person coming in by themselves unless they already know all their friends are going to be here. You know, and that's, we get that with some of our regulars where there's certain people who show up here eight times in a month because they like, you know, certain styles of music that we're doing more regularly than others. And they're having a good time.
1: It's also a humongous perk of the model of the venue. Yeah. Like being So there's like three or four revenue streams being generated into one place. So whether it's the performance aspect, the bar, the restaurant, there are so many. You could come for the food. You can come to a bowl. or You can go check out a concert or just come have a beer.
2: Absolutely. There's
1: four different ways to make money.
2: Yeah. And that ancillary income is what allows us to pay bands competitively and be as competitive as we can in this market. You know, so we tend to pay bands really well and we also treat them really well and we treat fans really well because we work so hard at what our brand is. You know, this room you walk in, there's a vibe. You know, it's not just a black, uh, it's not a, a four-wall black box room like so many other venues where you show up, you know, during the headliner set, you skip to the opener, you have two drinks and you walk out before the encore. You know, this is the kind of venue where you might show up, the doors are always at six. So we're always opening up before the show starts for a number of hours so people can come in and sit down and eat and drink and bowl. And then when they want to focus on the show, they can watch the show if that's all they want to do. Or they can just do all of those things at once, which mm. is our favorite kind of customer. You know, So it's a different business model, but it allows us to pay bands well and it allows for fans to really have a good experience
1: has that also given you guys a competitive advantage in the marketplace as far as we able to book shows because you're able to book your talent as well like it yeah can,
2: i think so yeah you know we do our a lot of our background is with jam bands and roots rock and folk music in new orleans you know and then we also do a lot of hip-hop and funk and soul and r&b and um, you know, we, we tap across multiple genres other than doing a solo acoustic jazz performance. Anything that's loud and exciting and, you know, something that makes you want to get into it is what we're doing. You know, and a lot of the jam stuff, as well as a few other genres, a lot of these bands play different sets every show. And it's very common for us to book bands multiple nights in a row and do these weekend-long runs of three nights or two nights, sometimes five. We've done Soul Live. Uh, has always done this thing called Bowl Live that was eight nights and two That's daytime right. performances. You know, we do a lot of things where the branding plays off of our name and the band's name because it's something we came up with with them. And, you know, people will show up multiple nights in a row and spend their entire weekend in one venue. So it, it does work well from that regard.
1: So like, what goes into the ultimate deciding of you booking an act? So does it, 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 a large part of it play based on of course, how many people you can bring into the venue, and also how much of it goes into your personal taste of like, oh, I think this band is super fucking cool.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do still get excited about a lot of bands, and that's a really good feeling, you know. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm booking this room for what's best for the for the identity of the room, the brand of the room, you know. And it's less about what I think is cool. If if it's going to sell tickets, it's going to be a really good show. It's going to drive a lot of traffic here, and and people are going to be really into it. That's the most important part of the end of the day. You know, so sometimes we have to think about a band playing on a Friday night in the winter time is not necessarily deserving of the exact same dollar amount on a Tuesday night in August. You know, even though the band has done really well one night, if they're coming back at a much more challenging time of the year, it's not obvious that they should be paid exactly the same. You know, maybe we build in a bonus so that we're starting lower, so we're protected better. And if the show does just as well as did the previous time, the band can make the same amount of money or mm. more. So there's a lot of little things that go into that. You know, Finding the right ticket price. We try to keep our prices as low as possible because of this walk-up factor and the fact that not everyone is coming just for one thing. So the cheaper the barrier to entry, the lower the barrier to entry, you know, the better it is for us and the more tickets we ultimately sell. You know, we could price shows a lot more expensive. Um, you know, sometimes we're cheaper than even the same band playing a different venue down the street six months earlier. Yeah. And that model seems to work really well for us because it allows us to get more walk-up business.
1: Um, I have a question here that is... Always one of my favorite questions to ask because I think approach is always important. Yeah, and, and how an introduction is is uh, implemented. <laughs> uh, how do you how do you contact and pitch uh, a talent buyer that you don't already know? So, what's the most effective way? Oh, this you're... is a good question.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I touched on it briefly. We have a blanket booking email, and you know, it's it's not always a good idea for our personal information to be out there, but this blanket email goes to five different people and we're all looking at it. You know, there's, like I said, there's some requests where it's just, hey, how do I get my band booked? And they don't leave any contact information. You don't know what they're talking about. There's a lot of other times where you have an effective one that gets us to review it, that gets a response that could lead to a booking where it doesn't matter if it's a manager, if it's just somebody in the band, if it's somebody's mom whose son is in the band, it doesn't matter. If they outline the show history, they say, This band has played this venue on this date with these other bands at this ticket price. They sold this many tickets if that number was pulled at the door. And sometimes they tell us how much they got paid. Sometimes they don't want to tell us that. The biggest thing is, where have you played? How did you do? Was it really you or was it because of another band if you opened for them or vice versa? You know, those are the the key factors. And being able to list all the social links... And include live videos. You know, it's one thing. You get a lot of... We book a lot of DJs. You know, we have a DJ booth that's behind the front of house so that when we do two shows in a night, sometimes if the band's playing three nights in a row on stage, but we have a late show, we'll have the DJ in the booth. That way it doesn't affect the stage setup for three days. So that still lets us do two shows in a night without messing with all the equipment. Okay. So, you know, a lot of DJs reach out to us and they don't always have links to anything. Sometimes it's Spotify playlist. And to me that's not, it's not always effective. Okay, You know, and this isn't just for DJs, but having live videos whenever it's possible show us that it's not just somebody who was able to make some really nice sounding track in their bedroom. It's a pro live act. You know, at the end of the day, this is a this is a rock venue. You know, rock is a loose word, but it's a live concert venue. You know, we're a rock club. You know, we want to have bands who are engaging and exciting and we, they have to all be at a certain level, especially given the size of this room.
1: Mm. Does it have an impact if an agent reaches out to you versus a regular, like an you know, independent artist?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I will say, you know, for us here specifically, because of the size, we deal primarily with booking agents, you know, more so than independent performers. But we deal a lot with independent artists who don't have representation, for some of our Sunday, Monday, Tuesday shows, as well as opening slots. So we're constantly juggling what our expectations are versus the band. So if you're an international touring act with a booking agent and a full team, you know, okay, probably makes sense. We're going to have to put you on a weekend because you're going to want real money and you're going to be paid, you know, appropriately. You need to be on a weekend so we can make that money back. If you're a local band... With no management and no representation of any kind, and you're the you know you're the trumpet player trying to get your Afrobeat band booked here on you know a Femi Kuti show that we have coming up that we booked with his booking agent. Okay, that's fine too. You know we have a massive network of local acts that we call upon regularly for opening slots and for midweek you know co-bill slots where it'll just be local bands, and you know we're not expecting those bands to sell six to nine hundred tickets each every time we book them. Some of those shows sell 200 or 300 or 400, um, sometimes less, but the expectations on our side are equal to what they should be for how to to book this band. So it's different every time, but it's just managing the expectations and making sure that an opening band who's going to get paid 500 bucks and bring 62 people knows that they're worth $500 and that they should be getting the opening slot and we'll work with them to grow it. So ultimately, some of these bands will have started as a Tuesday night opener. There's certain bands now where they've gone from that all the way up to a three-night-in-a-row Thursday, Friday, Saturday at $20 each night, and they're selling you know, almost 3,000 tickets.
1: Mm. Uh, what are the things that artists and managers do that make your life hell?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say... The artists themselves are usually never the issue, because they're usually going to their manager or their tour manager or their booking agent. So we're usually interfacing more when there are issues or, or problems that come up with the tour manager and the booking agent. Occasionally, the manager directly as well. Okay, but you know, there this room can be a little bit wonky because we always save some tickets for walk up that way we're never just fully fully sold out. It's very rare for us to fully sell out a show and have no tickets available at the door. It's a Bill Graham thing, you know, that our owner uh, Peter Shapiro really, you know, looks back on fondly. You know, the the Bill Graham model was always, okay, you can still walk up and you can get a couple tickets. And we try to reserve some tickets at the door for that, but also managing the expectation of what's how many walk-ups do we think we're going to get? It's You know it's it's a rough estimate but we've been doing it for for almost nine years so we know how to how to guess pretty accurately and you know it has to do with the weather and the ticket price the night of the week and the season and what the fan like who the fans are of a particular group Um, you know so we think about that in terms of how we're going to release the tickets but no matter how many times we explain it there can always be an issue where the booking agent or the manager says well just sell the tickets, you know, call it sold out. We don't want to worry about leaving tickets unsold because what if they don't sell? And it's a gamble because it's money that's off the table. So Hmm. that's something that comes up pretty regularly is just making sure people understand people as in booking agents and, and, you know, people that work with these artists understand what the room is and what makes us unique. Why would this band want to play here? part of the reason why is that they're going to sell more tickets here than they would at certain other rooms because of the softness of the ticket meaning the walk up business and the people that are coming in not just for the show it makes it a soft ticket play at times oh. that degree is variable though
1: uh, what's the what's the group that you know you booked early on that you're most proud of to say like you know hey I was one of the first people to book these guys
2: i will say that we've had We've done every New York City show with Wolf Peck outside of the first one or two shows they played at Rockwood Music Hall years ago. And that was a group that I was aware of a long time ago, before they were touring really, um, just from YouTube. And when their first booking agent was trying to sign them, he actually asked me, Hey, I heard you you know these guys or you know about them enough, like how do I get in touch with them? And he ended up getting in touch with them and signing them and they, they switched agencies, um, you know, later on. But it was kind of interesting to see because this band blew up quickly. A lot of it was because the music is different and interesting. You know, it's predominantly instrumental, but it's very seventies throwback Mm. like funk. So, you know, we we've been really lucky that, you know, we booked them pretty early on and we've, We've been able to be their promoter even when they haven't played here. They just did Brooklyn Steel most recently, and they're going to do King's Theater um, that we're co-promoting as well.
1: Killing it. And uh, what advice do you have, man? What advice do you have for for artists that are looking to to book their own shows and build their own tours? And, you know, what advice do you have for those folks?
2: I mean, on the, on the elementary level, what we talked about earlier with having a strong network and a strong base of people that you can trust and will vouch for you, the same thing applies to being in a band and to going on tour and to trying to get representation and develop a fan base. You know, So if you're a small band, you're a local band, you're trying to break out of your town or become big enough in your town, show swapping is really important. So making sure that you're constantly talking to other bands. If you want to go on tour, You know, let's say my college band was on tour in Syracuse and we wanted to go play in Burlington and then in Buffalo and Rochester and Ithaca, we would look up you know, who are the bands that were similar to us in those cities? We'd get in touch with them and we'd say, hey, can we do a show swap? So when that band would come to Syracuse, they would open for us. We would help bring in our crowd so that they would have a bigger crowd. And the idea is that you get the same thing, vice versa. You know, when you go to their hometown, that they're going to help bring out their crowd because you don't have that following just yet. Mm. And that's a really good thing for bands to do, um, you know, all the time, no matter what size they are until they get to a certain point where they have representation who, you know, a lot of the time booking agents, if they work in another company or they represent multiple clients, same thing with managers too, will try to package their artists together because there's usually some crossover genre wise um, on somebody's roster, but that's, you know, later on. So you have to do a lot of it on your own in the very beginning. So show swapping is really important, you know, being really active on social media Figuring out all the algorithms so that you know how to do paid ads on Facebook. You know, when we were used to play. You, I, you know, Facebook ads were they weren't really a thing. It wasn't really a big deal. But Instagram was just starting to become a thing too. Now it's so important, especially with the videos and everything. Like you can really outline a full tour announcement and say we're playing all these cities and you know tag us to win free tickets and you can do your Instagram ads and there's so many little things that bands can do now you just have to be savvy and find the right time the balance of the time to promote and do the business side of booking the shows and marketing the shows and advancing the shows versus being creative and being ready to perform and give it your all
1: um, I guess one last question I want to ask as well it's always the question of like how that I get from artists all the time is, you know, how do you book a booking agent? Like, how do I find a booking agent? Um, do booking agents come to venues like Brooklyn Bowl uh, to discover talent? Does that ever happen?
2: It does happen. You know, it's definitely more common to see booking agents go to smaller venues in the, you know, hundred to two or three hundred cap size in New York. Okay. Um, you know, it's different in every city. Obviously, like you know, six to nine hundred tickets in a in a smaller market is is a different scale, different point on the scale than, than it is here in New York. But, you know, it's pretty common for me to go to smaller shows, something like Mercury Lounge or Baby's All Right or whatever. And, and you know, you might run into multiple booking agents from different companies, right, when they find out an artist dropped their booking agent or was fired by an agent. Um, you know, there are some agencies where poaching happens, and there's a lot of agencies where they're really against it, and they wait until an artist does not have a booking agent in order to go and reach out to them um that's a whole nother discussion um but you know the bands have to try to solicit attention you know finding a manager first is probably more valuable than finding a booking agent okay but there are plenty of booking agents on the smaller scale who act as managers as well and you're really only paying one commission to them and you get the benefit of both things so it's just finding what's best for the artists. you know
1: Well, Lucas, man, I appreciate you taking the time out today. Absolutely. To come chat with me, man. You're a cool-ass dude.
2: Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much for coming down here.
1: No, man, I appreciate it, man. Let's talk to you soon.
2: Absolutely. All right, man. Thanks again.
1: Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of NBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at nbm studios nyc. I'm your host Corey Cambridge. Signing off till next time.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.